Hi, church. I'm Pastor Michael. I want to thank Jocelyn for leading the music. It was such beautiful songs. And um, as you can see, uh, I've decided to grow out my beard. Um, this is my pandemic beard. I feel like everyone should get a pandemic beard. Um, the other day, Christina was joking with me that uh, she thinks I should make a public vow not to shave my beard until this is all over and we can gather together again as a church. Um, it would be like a Nazarite vow. No blade shall touch my beard until we see one another face to face. But um, unfortunately, uh, that may be some time. And so I'm not going to make a rash vow. It would look very hoary. But um, I do want you to know that I often think about that day. And sometimes I will imagine what it will be like that first Sunday when we can all gather together again. And I want you to know that on that day, I'm going to hug and kiss every single one of you, assuming that we're all immune and we've been vaccinated and, and, and it's safe. And, and I just want you to know that I'm longing for that day. And I'm praying that God would bring it with haste. So let's go to the sermon. We're going to do a new sermon series on the attributes of God. So why are we doing a sermon series on the attributes of God? Well, as we've been going through this pandemic, and as I've been talking to so many of you, what I've been hearing is about this pervasive sense of dread. And we can't quite put our finger on it, but it's palpable in the air. This sense of anxiety and, and fear, you could just see it everywhere. And the natural question, right, um, is what does the future hold? When is this all going to end? And it's a terrible feeling. And so in all of this, we have to ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? Where is he? Does he care about us? Does he even know what we're going through? Maybe he doesn't exist. And so for the next several weeks, we are going to do a sustained study on the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible. What does the Bible tell us about God? Because in the end, that's what we most need in this crisis. We need an encounter with the true and the living God to address our fears and our worries. We need to know him. We need to feel his presence and his goodness. We need to know that he's for us and not against us. But I want you to know that the God of the Bible is far greater and far wilder than we could ever imagine. It's like that line in Narnia. My, my favorite line in the Chronicles of Narnia is when Susan, she hears about Aslan, who is the Christ figure of the stories, that he is a lion. And she asks, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver, he answers her. This is how he replies. Listen, is he safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that. The God of the Bible is not a tame God. He's wild. He's not safe. But he's good. And so we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 40, 
Isaiah 40 is one of the most beautiful, it's one of the most uh, famous passages in the Bible. And every time I read Isaiah 40, I can't help but to think of that scene from the chariots of fire. Do you guys know what scene I'm talking about? The Chariots of Fire is an old movie. It came out in 1981. And it's the true story of Eric Little, who in his day was the fastest runner in Great Britain. And he was scheduled to compete in the 100 meter dash, which is the premier event in the 1924 Paris Olympics. But the finals fell on Sunday. And as a devout Christian, he would not compete on the Lord's Day. And so it produced all this controversy and all this consternation and all this pressure came down on him. But he refused to compromise. And on the day that he was supposed to compete, he goes to church, a Presbyterian church, because he's a Scotsman. And he goes up onto the pulpit and he reads from Isaiah 40. And it's the climax of the movie. And he reads, you know, the passage, which is just this lofty, poetic language. And he reads it with this rolling Scottish accent, which just really magnifies um, the effect. And as he's reading the passage, the movie intersperses it with scenes from the 1924 Olympics. And you see the tumult and the competition of all the runners. And you see the nations competing for Olympic glory. And as you listen to Isaiah 40, you realize that all of it, it's such a small thing. It's such a small thing. And I feel like that's what we need most right now. We need that perspective. So I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 40. It's a fairly lengthy passage, but it's incredibly beautiful language. And so just listen and absorb. I'll read to you starting in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you? told you from the beginning have you not understood from the foundations of the earth it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them 
and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number. Uh, the host here are the starry host. These are the, the trillions of stars in the universe. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This is the word of God. So I have three points, and this is my outline. Number one, we're going to look at, uh, the title of my sermon, by the way, is God Incomprehensible. So the first point is we're going to see that God is incomprehensible. Number two, we're going to look at the human attempt to comprehend. And then number three, we're going to see that God alone, therefore, must reveal himself. So let's begin. God is incomprehensible. So let me begin with a quick definition. When we say incomprehensible, we are not saying that you cannot know God at all. But theologians are using this word in a very technical way because the word comprehend comes from the Latin word prehend, prehendare, which means to grasp. It means to take hold of with your hands. And so to comprehend something means that you intellectually grasp it, that you're able to take hold of it with your mind, with your hands. And so when we say that God is incomprehensible, it means that we cannot grasp God. We cannot grab Him and hold Him in our hands. We cannot understand Him in His essence, in the fullness of His being. Now, I know that it seems a strange way to begin a series about knowing God. But this is where we have to begin. Because it is to recognize that God is God and we are not. It is to acknowledge the infinite gap between the Creator God and His finite creation. And because there is this infinite gap, He will always be beyond our comprehension. He will always be beyond our understanding. Because God is not like us. He is not simply a bigger, stronger version of us, like the the gods of Greek mythology, like the superheroes of Marvel comics. But what makes God great is that He is nothing like us. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 6 says, There is none like you, O Lord. 
There is none like you, for you are great, and your name is great in might. This is why in our text, in verse 25, God says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? You see, we can't compare ourselves to God. We can't put God on some scale in which we are at the baseline and we sort of just extrapolate up to God. God is not times X our capacity, no matter how big the X is. And so the whole imagery of this passage is communicating that God is transcendent. That he is above and beyond creation. And the imagery here is really vivid and striking. And so let me just go through some of it with you. Look with me to verse 12. It says, He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And so here is God and he holds all the oceans of the world. And uh, it reminds me a few years ago, I watched a PBS documentary on the U.S. Pacific Naval Fleet. And it was a really great documentary. And it begins by saying that, you know, we have no idea, we have no idea how vast the Pacific Ocean is. The Pacific occupies one-third of the surface area of the, of the globe. And when you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, it's, it's this crazy thing because in any direction, tens of thousands of miles in any direction is open sea. And did you know that the U.S. Navy, we have three carrier fleets patrolling the Pacific. Each carrier fleet has um, uh, an aircraft carrier, and then surrounding it is this vast armada of cruisers and destroyers and submarines, and it's protecting basically this floating airbase. We have three of them patrolling the Pacific Ocean, crisscrossing it, and each one you know, is, is, is dozens and dozens of ships stretching out tens of miles, and they never come near each other. They never cross paths because the Pacific is that vast. And so God has not only the Pacific, but all the oceans of the world, Isaiah says, in the hollow of his hand, in the little space in his hand. My favorite imagery is verse 15. It says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. And so all the nations of the world, all the sum total of human genius and and civilization, it amounts to a tiny droplet. And the imagery here is God is carrying this, this bucket of water. And as he's carrying it, a little drop falls out of the bucket. And what is God going to say? Is he going to say, oh no, a little drop has fallen from... No, because the little drop, it's inconsequential. It's utterly, it doesn't matter. And so all the world's empires, all the terror and the might of the armies... And, you know, in the days of Isaiah, it was the Assyrian Empire, it was the Babylonians, it was the Egyptians, and in the middle of all these great forces was tiny little Israel. It was like this little pawn in this giant chessboard of geopolitical powers. And you know what Isaiah says? All of those empires, they're like dust on the scales. Picture in your minds one of those traditional balance scales, and you bend down, and when you look at it in a certain angle in the light, you can see these microscopic dust particles. They don't matter. It's insignificant. They're not going to affect the balance of the scales. 
And so all human strength and greatness doesn't even make God blink. Do you know why? Because in verse 28 it says, The Lord, the Lord is the everlasting God. That word everlasting is a really interesting word. It's the Hebrew word olam. And, you know, the Hebrew language doesn't really have a word that means forever. But the word olam means ages. And when you combine it with the word for God, El, El Olam, it means the God of ages. It means the God, the God who has existed age after age after age, the everlasting God. And so it's talking about the infiniteness of God. What do we mean when we say that God is infinite? Listen to me. It means that God does not have limits. It means that he cannot be measured. You know, everything in this universe can be measured. Space, time, energy, right? All of it is quantifiable. It could be really, really big, but there's some kind of limit. There's some kind of of endpoint, but not so with God. There is no endpoint with God. There's no point at which you could say, I've reached the 10% mark or even the 1% mark because no matter how far you go, no matter how much time you have spent, no matter how big the number it is, when you compare it to infinity, it's functionally zero. You haven't even yet begun. In other words, there is an an inexhaustibleness to God. This is really hard for us to understand. But this is the language of Scripture. Because in verse 28, it continues on, His understanding is unsearchable. That word unsearchable, what is that conveying? What does that mean? So imagine this. Imagine that you come upon a cave. And it's an enormous cave. It stretches beyond, out beyond your sight. And you decide that you're going to explore it. You're going to search through it to get some sense of its dimensions and how big it is. And then as you're walking through the cave, you realize that what you thought was the whole cave is actually just the opening chamber. And that there are tunnels and passageways leading out from it that open to other chambers so that it is an entire cave complex. And as you explore, you realize that each tunnel branches out to other tunnels and deeper and deeper they go into the bowels of the earth and there is no end to them. So that if you could go in any direction, even if you should spend a lifetime walking in the same direction, even if you, you should bring your family, so that when you die, you pass the mission on to your children and to your children's children, to a thousand generations, no matter what you do, you will never reach the end of any one of those tunnels. And then you realize with a kind of quiet terror, the cave is unsearchable. God is like that. He is like that in all of his attributes. His greatness is unsearchable. His wisdom is unsearchable. His goodness is unsearchable. 
And I want you to think about that for a moment. That, that God's goodness is unsearchable. It means that we will spend all of eternity discovering and learning about the God who is good. And because He is infinitely good, all the things that we don't know about God are only good. See, you and I, we are not like that. If you could learn everything there is to know about me, you would learn both a mixture of good things and bad things. You know, some things would be good, some things would be commendable, but some things would be bad. So bad that it would shock you. Because you see, we all have skeletons in our closet. But God, you see, in a sense, has a closet that is filled with infinite secrets about himself. But it only contains priceless treasures. There are no skeletons. And all the secrets of God, if we could ever learn them, would only bring us pleasure and delight. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 145, which David read for us, says, I will praise your name forever and ever, for great is the Lord, and His greatness is unsearchable. You see, we will never run out of things to praise God's name. It'll never get boring. It'll never get monotonous. It'll be this eternity of spontaneous amazement and praise. You see, God's incomprehensibleness fuels our worship. His unsearchable wisdom and goodness will forever fill us with wonder and delight. It's like the pleasure of being so small and then enveloped by something so big. I remember when my uh, boys were younger, I can't do this anymore, but when they were little toddlers, I would, I would pick them up in my arms and then I would toss them up into the air and I would catch them. And my boys would squeal with delight and they would say, again, daddy, do it again. Because it, it was a sheer delight. Do you know what it is like to be a little child in the arms of an everlasting God. You know, when we look at this pandemic, we wonder, what is God doing in all of this? And I want you to know, could we even understand the answer if God should tell us? Because you see, God is doing a million different things. He is orchestrating a million different lives and he's fitting to get, fitting them together perfectly and weaving them into this seamless tapestry for his glory and for our joy. And therefore we can trust him. We don't need to know the answer. We just need to know that the God of Isaiah 40 is in control. So that's my first point. God in all of his fullness will always be hidden from us. There will always be this impenetrable mystery to God because He is the eternal Creator and we are His finite creation. That leads me to the second point, which is the human attempt, I should say the wrongful human attempt to comprehend. So because the human race is fallen, God's incomprehensibleness does not create in us joy, but terror. It does not produce in us worship, but rebellion. 
And because God is incomprehensible, as Narnia says, he is an untamed God, because he is a wild God, we are not safe with him. And so what the human heart has done is through the ages, we have created a God we can comprehend. And that is what idolatry is. Idolatry is trying to bridge the infinite gap between the Creator God and we, His creatures. It's trying to bridge this infinite gap, but by reducing God to our level, don't you see, we have diminished His glory so that we don't have the real God anymore. We have a shoddy and cheap substitute. Look with me to verse 18. The prophet writes, To whom then will you liken God? (laughs) Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And so as you can see, the the text is just dripping with sarcasm because a man-made God is no God at all. Because what is an idol? It's a product of human craftsmanship. And Isaiah gives us, you know, a little sense of how it goes. You know, a craftsman, he fashions this metal idol And then he overlays it with gold. You know why? Because you don't want a dull God. You want it to be shiny. There has to be some bling to it. And then he puts on chains. So what are the chains all about? Well, the chains are there to keep the God in place so that he doesn't topple over. And so this is a God at every stage that is dependent on man, that needs chains to keep from falling. And if a man is too poor, well then he has to get a wooden idol. Because, of course, who God is, his magnificence and his glory depends on what you can afford. And so we're supposed to laugh at this because rendering God into any kind of image, of course, is absurd and it is wicked. Do you remember the passage in uh, Exodus chapter 32, the story of the golden calf? What happens is Moses, he goes up onto Mount Sinai to to, uh, talk with God. And because he does not return for some time, the people become anxious. And they go to Aaron, his brother, who is the high priest, and they say, fashion us, create for us a golden idol. Now, the way most people read the story is that they think, well, the people, they're turning to this new God, this completely different God. They're turning away from the God of the Bible, the God of Moses, and they're creating this new God. But the shock of the story, the shock of the story is that this is not a new God, but this is a depiction of the God of the Bible. And we know that because in verse 4, when Aaron creates the golden calf, he says, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. These aren't many gods because there's one calf. He's saying, this is the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush and of whom I, a high priest, serve. And you know, the, the modern person's response to that is, well, that's just silly. That's ridiculous. Of course, God isn't a golden calf. But that's because you don't understand the potent symbolism 
of a golden calf in the ancient world. You see, in the ancient world, a um, a yearling bull calf, which is what this animal is, a yearling bull calf was the most precious animal that anyone could possess. A yearling bull calf who has just reached maturity, and so you can just put him out to stud, can produce over his lifetime 150 to 200 cows. He's basically, an enti- he's worth an entire herd onto himself, so that in the ancient world, he was a, a symbol of strength and virility and power. And then on top of that, right, this bull calf was made of pure gold. It would have been visually overwhelming, so that when the people saw this golden calf, they fell on their knees and they they worshipped it. They, they poured out praise upon it, and they thought they were honoring the God of the Bible. But you see, they were despising him. They were denigrating him because they had made the everlasting, incomprehensible creator into something they could comprehend. This is what the second commandment is prohibiting. You know, in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. There are no other gods. There is only one God. He has no rivals. But the second commandment says, you shall make no graven images, no visual representations of God. Because in the Bible, the desire to see is the desire to comprehend. Because And because God is God, because He is infinite, we cannot see Him. Do you remember on Mount Sinai, Moses said to God, show me your glory. He said, show me your glory. And God said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. But what happens is God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock, And he says, I will make my glory pass by and I will cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, you will see my backside, but my face you shall not see. And so you see, God will always be beyond our reach. You see, God is like a mountain. And for all of eternity, we will be climbing the mountain. And as we climb and climb the mountain, we will discover amazing things about God, wondrous, delightful things. But listen to me, we will never reach the peak. We will never be able to stand upon the peak and look down on the whole mountain because the peak goes on forever. The mountain goes on forever. I know I'm just saying the same thing over and over again, but don't you see God is the everlasting creator and we are his finite creation. That leads me to my third point, which is that God alone must reveal himself. So we cannot comprehend God. And yet, scripture resounds with the call to know the Lord. And let me just give you two passages Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. It's a beautiful passage. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. 
Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see, we are to boast in nothing else in this life, but we are to boast only that we know Him. Or consider Hosea chapter 6, verse 3, one of my favorite passages. The prophet writes, Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. And then listen to this beautiful imagery. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And so here is this paradox. How can we know an unknowable God? Shall we ascend up into heaven and look for him? No. We cannot. And so the answer is, if we are to know Him. And the Bible says that we can know Him. We can know Him truly, and we can know Him sufficiently. But if we are to know Him, then it is God who must descend down to us. He must stoop down, so to speak, and reveal Himself. And in this book, in this book, in the Bible, He has... Do you know how amazing that is? That God is not silent. But in the scriptures, we can hear His voice. And so let me say two things very quickly about this. Number one, I can't think of a better inducement than this, to read the Bible. You know, all of us, were sheltering at home. And we have a lot of time on our hands. We can't go out at night. We have nothing to do. And so shall we just binge watch Netflix? Shall we just play video games all day long? No. Let us read the Bible. Do you know what an incredible privilege this is? That in the Bible, the incomprehensible God has made himself known to us. What a delight. What a pleasure. Number two, if scripture is God's self-disclosure to us, then we must necessarily accept all of it. You see, if you say, you know, I like this about the Bible, I like that about the Bible, but I don't really like this, I can't really accept that, right? If you pick and choose what you can accept in the scriptures, then don't you see you've put God in a box. You've reduced the infinite God into this little miniature version that you can understand, that you can comprehend, and you mustn't do that. You mustn't do that. You must let God be God. Listen to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So those are my first, those are my two points. We are to read the Bible and don't pick and choose what you will accept. 
But let me make a third and final point, and we're going to close with this. I want you to know that God has made himself known in his word. But it goes further than that. Because in John chapter 1, it says, the word was made flesh. The word was made flesh. The word of God became a human being and he dwelt among us. Because you see, God doesn't just want to disclose himself, but he wants a love relationship with us. And my favorite illustration, um, one of my favorite illustrations for this is one that Tim Keller tells all the time. And it's the story of Dorothy Sayers. Do you guys know who Dorothy Sayers is? She's a famous author. And she was one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford University. This was in the early part of the 20th century. And she became a detective novelist. And she wrote a series of books about this character named Peter Whimsey. Now, Peter Whimsey, he was an aristocrat. He was kind of upper crust. He was a bit eccentric, but he was very vulnerable and very smart. And so he would solve all of these mysteries. And then about halfway through the book series, a female character appears. And the female character is named Harriet Vane. Now, the books tell, the books tell us that Harriet Vane was one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. And she was a writer of detective novels. It's very interesting. And so what happened is that Dorothy Sayers, she looked down into this world that she had created and she fell in love with Peter Whimsey. And she saw how lonely he was. She saw how much he needed help. And so she wrote herself into that world. She entered the story. She marries him and she saves him. It's a sweet story. It's very romantic. But I want you to know that in Jesus Christ, it happened. You see, the everlasting God, he looked down on this world that he had created and he saw how much of a mess we had made of things. He saw that we were sinking. He saw that we were dying. And so he wrote himself into the story. You see, because he loves us, he wrote himself in and he went to the cross and he died for us. You see, that's the gospel. You see, the Bible tells us that our God is a personal God. And He wants a relationship with us. And so He took on human flesh. And He is Jesus of Nazareth. And when we believe in Him, we see the very face of God. Do you remember in John chapter 14, this is in the farewell discourse, we looked at this a few weeks ago, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, when we look at Jesus, we see the very face of God, but it doesn't kill us, it saves us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our deepest desire is to know you. That's what we were created for. 
Every human being has this God-shaped hole in their hearts and nothing in this world can fill it. But we recognize that it is no small thing to know an infinite God. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Christ. Thank you for the substitutionary death of the cross. Thank you that you, the everlasting God, that we can be safe in your arms. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.